0: Yes. From Luke, as you can see, chapter 22, verses 25 to 30. I'll start at 24, in fact, and Genesis 1 verse. Okay, you have the pages there. A dispute also arose among them. As to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we go, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Thanks be to God.
1: It gives me great pleasure to welcome Anthony Gill, who is going to come and share his reflections on the Trinity, which is a nice, easy subject to <laughs> do as a visiting preacher, or indeed any preacher. So um, we'd like to pray for you. <laughs> I imagine that would uh, be very welcome. Lord God, thank you for bringing Anthony to be with us this morning. Uh, we're very excited to hear your word, and we pray that you would bless Anthony as he speaks to us, bless the hours of preparation he's put in to the sermon, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts, and Father God, you know where each of us are at this morning, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would... Speak to each of our individual situations and that we would come away with a fresh revelation of who you are. We ask this in your name. Amen.
2: Amen. Hear me okay? Yep, yeah, take that, that darling. We haven't tested that yet. Super. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you so much for the warm welcome, especially to Liz for all the hard work she's done before today to make sure everything was lined up and uh, I knew what I was uh, speaking about and to. And this is an interesting series that you're currently going through. How are you finding it? Yeah? All made perfect sense? Yeah, we'll see how we go today, should we? Because you're quite right, when you come to the Trinity, it can be a little bit difficult. I often things like those magic eye pictures, you know, the blurry things, I can never do them, so I have no idea what they're about. Uh, My wife could. But you kind of look at them, and then apparently, after a while of looking at them, something emerges. An image of something allegedly. It could all be just a hoax that I'm not (laughs) on the inside of. Sometimes Trinity seems a bit like that. When we read through Scripture, we don't find a nice, tidy segment where we go, oh, look, there it is all laid out. I'll just read those few verses, and it all makes sense. Instead, the more we look and dwell and read Scripture, we find this mixture of references and relationships and connections between the Father, Son, and Spirit that kind of makes a bit of sense but doesn't make obvious sense. Some things almost seem to contradict and some things defy our understanding. And that's why it can be a little bit confusing. I hope uh, I won't add to that confusion in the next uh, few minutes. The reading from Genesis chapter 1 spoke about the wonderful truth of the triune God but we are made in the image of that triune God. Thing is, throughout the history of time, humanity's inclination has been to reject God, ignore God, and stubbornly pursue our own way. And this, over time and from the beginning, has distorted and tarnished that image rather badly such that at times we are unrecognizable from the likeness for which we were intended and created. And through the scriptures, something we see is God loving us, nudging us, shoving and sometimes kicking his people towards the likeness for which they were intended. God's patient and persistent. Have you noticed? And we see example after example through the scriptures of God doing this. The attentive reader of God's word will also notice something about this direction in which God moves us towards his likeness. It's always towards community. It's always into togetherness. To a people, not an individual. The likeness of God is not reflected in just me, but in us. That's something we often miss. One individual does not reflect the fullness of God in a likeness. Can't do. It's impossible. We can only do that in relationship to others. And this begins to make sense because you get to the New Testament, you look at Paul's letters, he spends a lot of time talking about relational issues in the church. Behaviors, you know he's naughty and nice lists he does every so often in these letters. Don't do this, do do this. They're pretty much all about things we do to others because that's where we trip up. That's where we run into trouble. You put me on a desert island, I'm reasonably well behaved. I'm a very good boy. You put me amongst other people, oh yeah, we make mistakes. We get things wrong. <laughs> So scripture is about helping us restore our likeness to God. And it also means that the things we understand of the triune God, what we understand about the nature of the triune God, are therefore reflected in the scriptures. So the teachings of scripture are about helping us to recover and to live out our likeness of God and therefore to reflect something of the nature of the Trinity So as we today start to think about aspects of the Trinity, I'm also just going to point out some parts of the Bible which show how this works out in our daily lives, our life together, that is. And we are inevitably going to touch upon some themes you've already looked at a little bit before. I'm not going to go into them too heavy, but a little bit of repetition will no doubt help us to remember everything that we've been thinking about the first thing I want us just to draw out from that Genesis um, chapter 1 is the distinction of God. Amongst those religions which claim to be monotheistic, that is, have a one God, we are a little bit peculiar because we seem to talk of having three gods. This baffles many both within the church and beyond. And it's true. It is a little bit confusing. And yet we find there is this functional difference in how the Trinity works. We find the Father as the instigator of things, the Son as the revealer and redeemer, and the Spirit as the empowerer and the completer. The problem I think we have in our culture when we hear those things is we immediately assign a value to them that the one who is the beginning of all things must surely be better than the one who sends his son. So the father is more senior, more important. But then the son sends the spirit, so surely the son's over the spirit. We kind of unintentionally find ourselves applying an uneven value to the father, son, and spirit. We don't mean to, it's just kind of inbuilt. Because we live in a society that will gladly pay hundreds of thousands a week to somebody who kicks footballs, but a lot less than that to somebody who can help restore us back to full health in a hospital. We'll pay people who sit in boardrooms indecent amounts of money, but those who help to educate the next generation barely enough to make life work. We have in our society a weird way of valuing people and different things. It's about power. It's about control. It's about these different things in play. But whether we want to or not, when we look at the Trinity and the roles of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we start to assign a value or worth that they don't actually have. We need to unlearn that so we can rethink what it means to be distinct. Because unless we do that, we start to misunderstand how the Trinity applies. Because when we start to then apply it to the church in an uneven, valued way, we might even begin to think that some jobs in the church are more important than others. And we know, don't we, from Paul's teaching in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the body of Christ, that's the opposite of what we should be doing. And from that reading or from Luke 22, where Jesus was saying, actually, just reverse your logic. The things you think are great are not great. The things you think are less are actually greater. The kingdom of God turns things upside down and on its head. And so actually, we need to rethink how this applies and how this shapes our life together. Otherwise, we start elevating people and having seniority and power where actually it shouldn't lie. And worst, we start to devalue people based on what they bring or do in the church. And you know what? If they're unable to actually do something in the church, we so easily don't value them at all. Now, I'm saying that's true of this particular church, but it's this temptation that we can find congregations slipping into when we import the values of society into our lives together. Instead, we find that actually there is a different way of doing it in the church. We find that actually Paul encourages us to say, yes, it's good that we are distinct, as it's good the Trinity is distinct. We need the uniqueness. We need the variety. We need the different things that people can bring to the life of the church. That should not be lost. But distinction of function should not relate to the value that we assign. Everyone should be valued as equal in the life of the church. For those who are up front or those who are unseen, preparing things before people arrive on a Sunday, for those who are doing the administration or going through the money trying to balance the books in the week, for those who are preparing things unseen or doing visits that people don't know about and acts of kindness that are never heard of, all things should be valued equally there's something else we find within the Trinity as well. This distinction is not individualism. So often today it's about me, about what I can do, how I can work. But what we find within the Trinity is, yes, they are distinct, but as we look through the scriptures, we find that everything that the one does, the others are involved with. Have you seen that? So we find these verses talking of how Jesus only does what the Father tells him to do. I will send the Spirit who will remind you of everything I have said. And all these other verses which hint and point and tell us that they're always working together. I was never very good at football, so it was a complete shock to me. In around about 1999 when I scored a goal, I can pretty much remember the year. It was almost the only goal I scored. Uh, I was shocked, but you know, after I walked away, my foot was not saying, did you see what I did? I scored a goal. No, we didn't do that, because actually my foot alone could not score the goal. It required my legs, probably my eyes, maybe even a hint of balance. Probably not much of my brain, because there's not much of a football brain in me, but uh, it took more than just a foot. That's the same with the church, isn't it? What somebody is doing in the life of the church requires the contributions and the support of others. We don't do things as a lone ranger going out and doing whatever we want to do. We need one another. Whether that's in terms of the support or the provision, the prayer, the encouragement, the practical help. I couldn't be here today without Liz's communication. I couldn't be here today without the lifelong commitment of some people to make sure this church is here. The Ken working on the sound, the worship you're attending, the prayers of those who've been praying for this service during the week. There's so many more things that have gone into today. I could carry on that list of people who have contributed. The Trinity is distinct, but it is not individuals working in the same era. They are involved deeply in one another's life. The second thing we find about the Trinity is the unity. This past week, some were celebrating the 500th year since uh, um, Luther went and posted his 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg. Actually, it was quite a common thing to do when you wanted to start an academic debate. It, wasn't, it was done in Latin as well, so only the educated people could read it, but they go and post this, It was a common way of starting the discussion. (laughs) He achieved that. Um, Maybe a bit too much. He didn't plan to go and start a reformation. He just wanted to ask some tough questions. But what then unraveled was the emergence of the Protestant church, the split away from the Catholics. Now there's other pockets of this going on. And to be honest, since then, it's been kind of like the Pringle effect, you know? Once you pop, you just can't stop. And so we've split, and we've split, and we've split. And it's kind of been the habit of the church, hasn't it, ever since? This church, that church, start up, break off. I know, well, I think I mean something of a rarity. (laughs) Knowing this church here recommends actually, um, reflects, an effort to bring together many different denominations in one. And so maybe I'm preaching to the converted. But actually, there's a sense in which so often the church is known for its division and its disunity than it is for its unity, which is heartbreaking to hear and really difficult to explain to people, isn't it? So what church do you go to? Well, I go to a Baptist church. What do you do? Do you wear... No, I don't wear the stuff. Do you, no, I don't do that. Why not? Well, yeah, okay. Uh, we, we fell out with them about 400 years ago, so we split off. <laughs> You know, it just gets awkward, doesn't it, when we tell this broken history. And even now, we see churches going through splits and divisions. If you've got your Bibles, do just jump to another passage in John 17, because we find there this incredible prayer by Jesus. In verses 20 and 21, Jesus prays this. this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Goodness me, that's a high aim, isn't it? Not that we might just, you know, get along. We might tolerate one another company for a few hours on a Sunday, and that we may be one as the Father and the Son are one. I think sometimes we can set the bar too low, can't we, in terms of what we're aiming for unity with. And again, as we look at the unity of the Trinity, we find ourselves into one of those logical conundrums again, of thinking about both the separation but also the unity and how these two things are held together at the same time they're either being absent. And yet this struggle for unity in the church is not a new one. Actually we find it right back at the beginning. You don't need to turn there unless you really want to. But in Acts 15, the early church in the first days was encountering a similar problem. At the time, it was the conflict between these churches, which were now mixing Gentiles and Jews together. They had worked really hard to be separate, actually very separate in terms of how they avoided one another. And now this Jesus church had kind of brought these two people into the same fellowship together, and there were differences of opinion. Some were saying, actually, well, the way we do this, uh, this Jesus church should all be, reflecting the Jewish customs and practices that I have honored for generations and my ancestors have done as well. We must still do those Jewish things. On the other hand, those were those influenced by the teachings of Paul. And uh, they were saying, well, they're no longer relevant because Jesus came and he's dealt with all that, so we don't have to do those things. Now they were kind of right, because we know from Galatians 3.28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, Um, slave or free, male or female. All these social divisions have been dealt with by Jesus. Our primary identity is as the new life we have in Christ. But the people weren't there yet. There was a gap between where people were, where they should be, and this need to keep the unity of the church together. So these people gather together, the church leaders in Acts 15, and they're trying to kind of work it through. And they come up with a solution. It's a compromise. Yes, we say. We love compromises, don't we? We immediately have a negative connotation, don't we, with the word compromise. Compromises aren't good. I don't want to compromise. I want to stick to my guns. I know I'm in the right. But James, the leader of the early church in his wisdom, chose to protect unity over rightness. A bit uncomfortable with that sometimes, don't we? That's what he did. He wanted to keep it together, he valued unity more. And I think we see this pattern going throughout the New Testament teachings, particularly from Paul as well. To live peaceably requires compromise, it requires an accommodation towards the differences that we have, it requires acceptance of things we don't always completely agree with, but it means most of all that we really treasure, and really treasure reflecting the likeness of God in the unity that we hold together. Now we are here having to translate from the Trinitarian character of unity into our human situations. We've got a couple of difficulties. One, we're human. We're not the eternal, perfect, triune God who is bereft of the insecurities, the pride, the individualism, the stubbornness, and all those things that we hold. But also, we live in human contexts that are burdened by the legacy of generations and generations of people ignoring God and splitting and fracturing and coming apart and not compromising, not working together. And we're caught up in these systems and structures that so often haven't Prioritize unity. And we have these boundaries, these hard lines between. The pursuit of unity has been usurped so often by our strident individualism. Our desire to hold our rights and what we think is right over and above the need to be united together. So as churches, we have a hard time bringing unity together in how we live. And the steps towards that involve the path of compromise in the best possible sense of that word. But as we do so, we begin to prioritize the unity of our life together and reflect something of the likeness of God. The third key characteristic of the Trinity is love. And we have a problem with that word, don't we? Because, you know, well, I'm not sure what it means always. Uh, one of my, my favorite things to eat when I get the opportunity, and not all the time, but occasionally, is a cheese sandwich with jam. Anybody else partial to the? I'm with you. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. If you don't have one, you're missing out. Uh, and I love a, a cheese and jam sandwich. I, because my wife gives me this wonderful look every time I have one, she uh, says, really, must you? I go, I, I must, actually. It is a must. Um, preferably with white bread. Um, and, um, but you know, I couldn't do it every day. I couldn't have a cheese and jam sandwich every day, much as I do love the cheese and jam sandwich. But the thing is, we use love about cheese and jam sandwiches. We use love about lifelong relationships that we have. We use love about things that we hear or see or experience. And then we say love of the Trinity. We are clearly having differences in the quality of the word love. We need to define what this love is a little more. And as we look at the scriptures, we begin to see that the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and God is love. How do we kind of understand that? Well, we understand it because actually the love that the Trinity shares has spilled over into the love expressed towards us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son we begin to understand understand something of the love expressed within the Trinity by what we've experienced of God's love towards us. So I think I want to, and we could say so much about this, but I want to say just one thing this morning which is helpful and relevant to what we're looking at. For the purposes of the Trinity, I think it's helpful if we understand love as the reciprocal self-dedication they express towards one another the reciprocal self-dedication. That resolute commitment to remain together, to be self-giving towards the other, to be resolute in how one continues to relate and to uplift the other. You see, this is a love that doesn't promote oneself, that isn't glory hunting and seeking one's own ends, but seeking to encourage and lift up the others and to work with each other. This is the love which spills over into Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. This is the love which spills over into that passage from Luke 22, where Jesus reverses the whole understanding of greatness by saying, haven't I served you? Jesus says, isn't he, in verse 27 I am among you as one who serves. Service. Service is the expression of love within the Trinity and one which directly correlates to our life together as a fellowship. To serve without grasping for power, to wash one another's feet, metaphorically or literally, to give without expecting back, to avoid those things that just say, oh, yes, didn't you? you know, I was around so-and-so helping them the other day because I'm wonderful. You know, there's this phrase, the humble brag. Have you come across that? Mm-hmm. It's a naughty thing when someone just humbly mentions what they were doing. Oh, the other day I was just going down the street and I uh, helped this homeless person. I brought them a meal some clothes, a house. <laughs> yeah, and it's just that it's all about making themselves look good. But play that within the church, it so often goes unnoticed, the humble brag, and it's actually used to claim a little bit of I wonderful power. Let's not have that. That's not what Trinitarian love is about. That's not the sacrificial love that Jesus gave to us. We don't want that kind of stuff. It's about power and claiming stuff. Let's call it for what it is and encourage gently, that being a plank and a sawdust speck situation, a little bit of repentance there. And what does this love look like in the fellowship? If you want to look at what it looks like, read one John, because that's all about that. How to love amongst one another, really gritty love, love that makes a difference to a fellowship's life. And what does a fellowship look like when you do this together? It looks wonderful, because everyone's encouraging and lifting each other up. Now I'm very much aware that when we have one of these kind of practical how-to sermons, the danger is you end up with, "You ought to be doing this, and therefore we must go and do this." And we find ourselves very easy drifting from the path of grace. So it's really important we understand how we get to these things we've been looking at. We don't emulate the Trinity through seeking to mimic the character of the tri-new God, to try to do the things that make us look like God. We get there only through embracing fully the gracious gift of the Father in Christ through the Spirit. And then we find the Spirit's work within us, of bringing the fullness of Christ's salvation to us, starts to reveal that fruit in us, starts to bring out that character in us, starts to help us to play our part in revealing the likeness of God in our shared life together. It's the same old surrendering our lives to Christ day by day, action by action, moment by moment, interaction by interaction, so that the way we live and share life together As a fellowship, might begin to reflect the likeness of God. So let us give in to God's ways in our lives, that we may reflect the likeness of the triune God. Let's be still for a moment, and then I pray. Heavenly Father, We pray that uh, within this fellowship and through us, your likeness would be more evident week by week and year by year, that your spirit would bring your transformation to our lives as we surrender every aspect of who we are and how we live. We pray this in your name. Amen.